Good morning, friends. Every once in a while, I, uh, I write a really good sermon. Um, and uh, on Saturday night, I think, I really hope I can preach this as well as I wrote it. And uh, that rarely happens, but uh, I was telling Sherry last night, this is really a good sermon. And I just plead with God that, that he will communicate to you through me by the Holy Spirit uh, half of what I think is here. And I will be overjoyed for eternity. But uh, it is such wonderful stuff. I mean, how can you really not come up with a good sermon uh, in the latter portions of each of the Gospels, right? When you're talking about the passion of Christ, uh, what he's done for us, man, it's so full and rich. So I'm, I'm happy for the prayers that were just uttered um, on your behalf, uh, that we might hear from God and actually uh, benefit greatly from it. This, of course, as you know, is Palm Sunday, and churches normally make a big deal of Palm Sunday, even to the point of making some significant decorations and all to get um, their members into the mood of the celebratory uh, atmosphere of that first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem. You remember what was going on. There were, the streets were lined with, with the people of Jerusalem anticipating this king Jesus that they had heard about or witnessed personally, um, and all the mayhem that was surrounding the Passover week, this was just an added attraction, and it seemed to be a, a fairly significant attraction. And as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, surrounded by all these other lambs that were being ushered into the city to be slaughtered on the day of Passover, which would be Thursday or Friday of this coming, this same week, uh, Jesus was never confused about what was going on. Thoughts like this never entered his head. Well, maybe they will receive me. You know, maybe I will be king by the end of the week. Maybe, you know, this will all work out in the first time around. Uh, th those thoughts never entered his mind. He knew he wouldn't be set up as the Messiah King no, and he knew that because he had planned the week. He knew exactly how the week would end because he orchestrated it. He came to Jerusalem for one reason and one reason alone. Now, if you've been here during our study of the book of Mark, you've heard us discuss this before, Mark's use of the word immediately. Do you remember that early on when we kind of highlighted that issue? Uh, we, we can relate to the term immediately. We appreciate the meaning. We like immediacy in our lives. Um, we are a, an immediate culture, I think. We want what we want immediately. We want our groceries delivered now. We don't want to wait in a doctor's office. Uh, we want our food quickly when we order it at a restaurant. We have microwaves so that we can have immediate hot dogs. Um, we have all sorts of stuff to accomplish the immediacy of our lives, the need for the immediate, right? And so we like, when we come to Mark's emphasis on immediately, we can go, oh, hey, somebody we can appreciate. And Mark uses the term immediately um, because he wants to keep the pace of the book moving. He wants you to anticipate something that's changing and, and either a conversation or a setting and so he uses the word immediately. Immediately he went across the, the, the Sea of Galilee. Immediately the demon came out, that kind of thing. He does that to keep us on our toes. And so he wants to, us to see this fast-moving perspective of the ministry of Jesus. But now in our text today, we see Mark continues this idea of immediacy by showing the immediate results of what the work of Jesus on Calvary actually accomplished. You know, you, you may sit there and, you know, take up a diet or an exercise routine and not see results for months. Mark doesn't want us waiting that long. 
He wants you to immediately recognize and experience the effects of the work of Christ on Calvary. And so he plugs them in here to the text. I want to point them out to you. So think with me for a second. I hope you have your Bible open to Mark 15. If not, please do so. Mark 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. The question I want to ask here to get your brains functioning with me is what immediate effect, and I mean immediate, what immediate effect did Jesus' work on the cross have on our relationship with God? Mark shows us that the suffering and death of Jesus accomplished three essential things for us now, immediately. So there are at least three things that Mark wants us to know that the death of Jesus, the suffering and death of Jesus on Calvary accomplishes right now, all right? Jesus came, according to Mark's key verse, Mark 10, 45, to give his life as a ransom for many, right? He came to, to give his life in exchange for ours. He came to pay the ransom that we owe but cannot. He paid the penalty that we owe but we cannot. So he came to, to deal with what was required by God because of our sin. That's why Jesus came. He came to be the ransom. Now, I want you to leave today after hearing this presentation, this sermon, rejoicing in your Savior. But there is a path to rejoicing uh, that isn't uh, well-traveled, and I want you to travel it today. In order for you to conclude today's service with your heart exulting, rejoicing in all that God has done for you in Christ, you'll need to understand the depths of your sin. All right, and I'm gonna take you there. Uh, and there are some dark times in the next few minutes that you'll each wrestle with, but on the other side is amazing joy and freedom that I want to share with you. So I want to show you how Jesus is the ultimate, complete, and immediate solution to your sin problem, to my sin problem. There are three problems associated with our sin, right? Are you following me? There's three problems that are associated with our sin. The first, of course, is the penalty of sin. The second is separation from God, and this separation from God has two, two parts. That is death and eternal death, all right? Jesus dealt with all three of these. So let's take them one at a time, starting with dealing with sin. I'm going to read for you Mark 15, 33 through 39. Follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled it a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see if, whether or not Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Okay, so we, uh, there's things going on here that I'm going to try to explain to you to give you an appreciation for this, this wonderful work of Christ on your behalf. So we all know that Jesus went to the cross to deal with our sin, right? If you went to daily vacation Bible school one time, you learned that. That Jesus went to the cross to deal with our sin. It's something that is so fundamental to our faith, it's, we almost bypass it, right? Jesus went to the cross to die for my sins. The question is, how did Jesus actually satisfy God's perfect requirements and pay the just penalty that we owe as sinners 
simply by dying on a cross. Many people died on a cross up to this point. So how did Jesus' death on a cross actually satisfy God's perfect requirements and pay the penalty that we owe as sinners? Mark wants us to help us understand this. Mark wants us to see the intensity of the suffering that Jesus endured as he carried the weight of all the sins of, people, of his people on that cross. It was more than just one man dying instead of us. And this passage reveals how it was more. First of all, you'll see in your outline under the main points, the subpoints being the event. And that's just the, what's revealed in the text. And then after the event is the, uh, what is it? The immediate, I'm finding it here. The immediate demonstration. So we have the event, and then we have the immediate demonstration. So the event where Mark wants us to see that sin was fully dealt with by God on Calvary through Christ's suffering is that Mark only records one of the famous seven last words of Christ. Right? He only recorded one of the famous seven last words of Christ. Each of Jesus' seven last words are important. So why didn't Mark record the rest of them? Why just this one? Well, if you think about that a little bit, this will reveal to you what Mark is trying to communicate to us. The, the other three Gospels, for example, record the other six. In fact, all seven. But it seems that Mark wants us to focus on this one last statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Mark want us to zoom in on that statement? Remember what Mark's trying to do. He's presenting Jesus as the solution to the chaos of sin, right? One of the most consequential experiences of sin I think you'll agree with this. One of the most consequential um, experiences of sin will be dealing with the wrath of God in punishment for that sin, right? Isn't that the thing that causes us a little bit of anxiety when we think about our sin is one day facing a God who knows every last detail of all of our sin and we will stand before him one day. So this is a, a consequential, significant thing. We can't even imagine the horrors of that experience. The verses in hell that we read about these things are excruciating, and to consider the reality beyond what's the description in Scripture is beyond our ability to comprehend. Hell is not a fun place. You're not going to be hanging out with your friends in hell. So we can't imagine it. So how does Jesus solve this problem here in this passage? Well, the answer is found in this quote in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is how we know that our sins, if we are in Christ, our sins are fully taken care of. Listen as I explain this to you. There is so much more to this statement than simply a cry of distress. Mark helps us understand the depth of our sin and the profound necessity of Jesus' solution as our divine substitute here in these verses. And I'm sure that we'll need to revisit this on our second pass through these chapters, but today I hope to give you a deeper appreciation of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago. First of all, I had a few questions when I approached this particular passage, this particular cry of Jesus's, and here they are. What was so intense that Jesus shouted with a loud voice? Was it his physical suffering that caused him so much distress? Was it his emotional suffering? What was going on that would cause Jesus to shout with a loud cry my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
times 10 on the volume. Next, why did God forsake his son? If, if, if he did. And what does this forsaking mean? Did Jesus cease being God in this moment? Right? The Godhead is one, right? We, we read that in a couple different places. So if there was a forsaking of one member of the Godhead towards another, did Jesus remain God during this forsaking moment? And what did the three hours of darkness mean? What was going on there? Anyways, as I thought through all these things and researched them, uh, I, I came to the following conclusions. And by the way, you need to keep in mind all that had transpired up to this point. Uh, all the pre-death trauma, all the shaming, all the extreme pain experienced by Jesus leading up to the crucifixion and even the crucifixion itself. There are a few things that I want you to consider as we dig into this. First of all, the Jewish clock. If you're wondering about you know, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the Jewish clock began at 6 a.m. So the ninth hour would mean 3 p.m. So 6 plus 9 is 3, so that's how we know. It was 3 p.m. when he shouted this particular statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? came out of his mouth at 3 p.m. just when the darkness was leaving. Darkness came over the face of the earth at noon, lasted till 3. Jesus shouted this statement. And so these things were shared with us for a few reasons, but one... We're, we, Mark wants to inform us of how long Jesus actually hung on the cross. This, experiencing this excruciating physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. Six hours worth was going on. Secondly, Jesus didn't mention his physical pain in his cry, did he? He didn't say, oh, these nails are really rubbing me raw. No. He didn't complain about the injustice of the trial that put him on the cross. You guys never gave me a chance. I, I didn't have any of my own witnesses. I, no. No complaints like that about his physical pain, about the injustice, or even about the taunts that he was receiving from the crowd and the priests themselves. His only complaint, seems was 10,000 10, times more burdensome than all those things combined. The experience of his father turning away from him. That, that tells you something, because we know the, the extremes that he endured, physically and emotionally and mentally, but to not even mention those and to focus on the separation of his father with the intensity that he does tells us this was way worse in his mind. <clears throat> this was the first time in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, in his eternal existence where he experienced separation from members of the Trinity. This was the first time. This is what weighed on him so much in Gethsemane. This is why he was convulsing on the ground in front of Peter, James, and John in the garden where they thought he was sweating drops of blood because of this issue that Jesus saw into. This does not mean that the union of Christ's two natures were dissolved. You know, divine man, God-man, when God forsook, forsook Jesus, his son, on the cross, Jesus remained fully God-man in one person. This also does not mean that God the Father pulled his support from Jesus during his darkest hour. We read this in Isaiah 42.1 and John 16.3, where the Father says he will never withdraw his support of his son. The, the words that Jesus shouted, listen, actually mean, when Eloi, Eloi, actually mean my strong one, my strong one. So what does this tell us? 
It, first of all, we learn that Jesus had not lost faith in his father. He still believed that his father would sustain him through these things, the very things he prayed for in the garden. He wasn't praying to miss the cross. He was praying to be sustained through the cross. So we learn when Jesus addresses his father as my strong one, my strong one. First of all, we learn that Jesus had not lost faith in his father. He, he remained in complete and full loving dependence upon him, especially during this time of extreme suffering. We must also keep in mind that the purpose of Calvary's cross was to accomplish some specific things. Christ's suffering and death were intended to soak up all of the wrath of God that would have been expended on the sinner, but instead was poured out on Christ. You've heard, if you have any kind of understanding of the doctrine of hell, how much of God's wrath will be poured out on those who end up there. All of that was poured on Christ in those moments. This was the intent of the cross, to soak up every ounce of the wrath of God towards sin. And it was crushing. In fact, Isaiah says he was crushed for our iniquities. And I mean crushed. The forsaking that Jesus suffered would have been the same eternal suffering of those who would be eternally forsaken by God if indeed they stand in their own place instead of standing with Christ. The most severe element of eternal damnation is being forsaken by God, right? That, that is what the problem with eternal damnation is. You are separate from God for eternity. This is what Jesus was feeling. An eternal separation in this moment. He had to endure this to its fullest extent. He suffered the torments of hell like those who would be finally condemned in their sin. You and me, had he not chosen us. He took it all for us. Next, his loud cry tells us that it wasn't the whimper of an expiring listless man ready to die. It was a loud, boisterous cry. I've read a couple commentaries say that it was a screaming groan. His senses and his determination, even his strength, remained in this moment, which was near the last moment. His outcry reveals to us that he gave up his life on his own terms. Remember, he was still, he still had vigor at this moment. But he gave up his life on his own terms. Jesus had said earlier, recorded in the book of John, that he controlled his own life and his own death. He was the only one who decided when and where he would die, and no one would take his life from him. John 10, 17 through 18. So he was in control of his own death, the moment of his own death. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next, we can see is a quote from Psalm 22. It's the way Psalm 22 begins, word for word. Why did Jesus say this? Well, because he, he spoke these words to point anyone listening, even those of us reading about it, uh, unmistakably to the psalm which speaks of the suffering Savior. You want to know what the Savior would suffer? Read Psalm 22. And so Jesus points people there by quoting the first line of that psalm. Even in the depths of his suffering, Jesus remained committed to communicating his true identity. Go read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you finish the psalm, which is not a long psalm, by the end you'll realize how much pain and suffering the Savior went through. So why all of this agony? Why, why couldn't he just go to the cross like we learn in, in preschool Sunday school 
Jesus died for me and, and it's an exchange and how, why all of this record and agony? Listen closely, because God's purpose was to heighten the sufferings of Jesus Christ to the greatest degree possible to fully satisfy his wrath against sin. Let me read that for you again. God's purpose in all of this agony in his son, Jesus Christ, was to heighten the sufferings of Jesus Christ to the greatest degree, to fully satisfy his wrath against sin. How much wrath against sin does God possess? This much. The extreme suffering of Jesus should alert us, friends, to the, sincere, the, the seriousness of sin. There is no sin that you commit that is not serious. There are no such thing as white lies or false prayer requests taking the place of gossip. There, there's no such thing as small, inconsequential sin. The sins that we commit are what took this amount of intense suffering to be resolved. There would be no resolution to your smallest sin that you've ever committed, if there is such a thing, unless Jesus endured the full extent of God's wrath. How serious is your sin? It's this serious. And so when we or when churches or when people outside the church minimize sin, even exalt sin, as we see all over the place in our world today, you have to wonder about their understanding of what took place on Calvary. Why all the agony? Because sin is horrendous. The only way to solve the sin problem is what happened on Calvary. And how do we know it was solved? Well, the immediate demonstration here is a beautiful one. And it is found in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here is the immediate demonstration, and what I mean by that is right after Mark exposes the, the heinousness of sin and the intensity of God's dealing with, pouring out all of his wrath on his son, the very next word out of, or, yeah, word out of Mark's pen is the centurion believed. Immediately. <laughs> so, the immediate demonstration of the effective nature of Jesus' death in dealing with sin is seen in this response. He believed. Mark included this example of belief so that we can see that God had indeed accepted the sin-killing work of Jesus Christ and was already applying, before he was even down from the cross, God the Father was already applying it to the most undeserving person within the story, the man who actually killed Jesus. This centurion was the one who killed Jesus. Physically, literally, right then. So after the centurion witnessed everything that he had witnessed that Jesus went through, including the extreme scourging, he was there doing the whipping, the Via Dolorosa, where he encountered exhaustion and ridicule. The centurion was leading that charge, that little parade. He was right next to Jesus. The nailing of Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, this centurion held the hammer. The ministry to the thief, the ministry to his mother, the ministry to the onlookers and even those who were taunting when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. This centurion was right there. When he experienced the darkness, the earthquake, the self-controlled death of Jesus, this centurion came face to face, literally, 
with his Savior. He saw Jesus for who he truly is. This man truly was the Son of God. He had been persuaded. He was saved. There's an immediate demonstration for you, right? <laughs> Let's look at how the death of Jesus deals with the second thing. There's three. Here's the second one, dealing with separation. Look at verses 37 and, 30, uh, 37 and 38. Jesus uttered a loud crowd cry and breathed his last. Other gospels tell us what these loud, loud crowds were. Uh, it is finished, we hear other gospels say. Into your hands I commit my spirit, we hear other gospels say. Mark, Mark avoids those because he wants us to focus on my God, my God, the intensity of it all. But those were the things that were shouted out of Jesus' mouth. And then it says, he breathed his last. In the very next sentence, you can guess what this is, the immediate demonstration, verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So let's work our way through this. We know that sin separates man from God, right? Isaiah 59.2 says this. But your, iniqu your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his, his face from you. And, and Isaiah 59 is not the only one that talks about this. It's all over the Bible. But starting in the Garden of Eden, after the sin of Adam and Eve, God withdrew that personal interaction, that personal friendship, communion with sinful man because they were sinners now. He was holy, they were sinners. And so the first couple were dismissed from the presence of God in the garden. And the only way that man was able to fellowship with God was when God decided to speak to a prophet who would speak to the people, that intermediary. And in the temple, it was through the priests and the sacrifices, never with God. There, that relationship had cut off. There was a separation between sinners and God, right? But when Jesus died on the cross, listen closely, that unnatural separation from our Creator was bridged. It was solved. How? So when the, when the cross of Calvary took place and Jesus died upon it, the separation that had been in place since Adam and Eve was destroyed, eliminated. It was opened up once again. Access to God. The event, of course, was Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross. Listen to the next phrase, as our high priest. He died as our high priest. And what do high priests do? They are an intermediary, aren't they? They represent man to God and God to man. They stand between God and man. That's what priests do. Here, Jesus is acting as this mediator between God and man. He stood in our place. He was our substitute. God the Father received his own blood instead of the blood of goats and bulls, took the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and his suffering instead of ours. He represented us. Listen to these words from Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared, verses 11 and 12, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, what good things have come? How about this, forgiveness of sin. <laughs> e eternal relationship with our creator. These are good things. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not in this creation. So I spent a little time on this text when we were studying Hebrews, but what we learned from this text is we have a tabernacle, you know, in Jerusalem that is a replica. It's original to man, but it's a replica because the prototype is in heaven with all the furniture and all the rooms in heaven. This is what this guy's talking about, the author of Hebrews. When Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect tents in heaven, not made with hands, so Christ entered, look, he entered once or fall in, into the holy places in the prototype temple. Not by means of blood of bulls and goats, but what? 
by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. <laughs> the news is getting really good, isn't it? Yeah. And then listen to this, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, why do we have confidence to enter the holy places? He says it in the next phrase. By the blood of Jesus. That's why we have confidence. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, the separation has been eliminated. We now have free access to God because of what Jesus did. And what was the immediate demonstration of this? Well, if we were to say, Mark, prove it, he did. Verse 38, look at it. It proves the efficacious work of Jesus to deal with separation. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, verse 38 says. That's significant. What did, the, what did this big, thick, six-inch thick curtain represent? Do you remember where it was? It was between the most holy place and the holy place. The most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was at the back of the temple, and it was constructed in a complete and perfect cube, and in the center of that cube was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Then came this huge, thick curtain, and then on the front side of this curtain was the holy place. Priests went in and out of the holy place numerous times a day, but they could not pass around the side of that curtain and into the holy place, holy, most holy place, except for once a year, and they had to take with them the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's the curtain that was ripped from top to bottom. And what was behind that curtain was the presence of You can put these things together in your brain, can't you? If this curtain that represented separation from the people was torn in two from top to bottom, bottom, God said, now that my son has died, you can have free access into my presence. No more sacrifices, no more priests. You just come through the work of Christ and I'll receive you. That was how the separation was dealt with. You don't have to sit out here and wait for me to pray to God for you. You can go straight to God through Christ Jesus. This is the bane of the Catholic Church, thinking they have to go through some priesthood to gain access or audience with God. No. Read Mark here. <laughs> it's cleared up completely. Read Hebrews. No, friends. We can enter boldly, it says, into the presence of God because there is no longer a separation. <laughs> this is an amazing thing. There is now nothing standing between God and man. Reconciliation has taken place. <clears throat> Thirdly, dealing with death. Dealing with death. Mark 15, 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, and it's preparation for uh, the Passover, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, that's the centurion who killed him, summoning that centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought the linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against its entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where it was laid. This is the third thing, critical thing, that Mark says the death of Christ deals with immediately. And this is glorious stuff. <laughs> death 
is the great enemy of mankind, wouldn't you say? And we can prove it because uh, it wasn't long ago that our great-grandparents were walking the planet with us, right? Uh, and it won't be long till we won't be walking the planet. As I've said before, no one's making it out of the 23rd century here, right? We're all going to be gone, and our children in the room will be gone with us. Their children, maybe, will make it into the next century, but none of us will. The point is, time marches on and takes us with them into the next life. Death is that passageway from here to there. Hence, we call death the great enemy. It's been called that throughout biblical history. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, death is an enemy to us. Death is the thing that we all dread and avoid everything we can to get out of it. But especially those who don't know Christ, right? Death is, listen to this, you may not think of it this way, but it is true. Death is unnatural to us. You know, they say the only thing, the only thing that for sure is death and taxes. Well, death isn't natural to us. It wasn't part of the original creation. We were designed to be immortal, and we know it in our hearts, don't we? Something is wrong with death. It is. The Bible makes that clear. But because of sin being introduced into the human race, death became part of our existence. Death is the consequence of sin. As it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? Jesus or the Father said to Adam and Eve, you eat the fruit and you shall surely die. That's sin equals death, right? So what was the event here to, that Mark wants us to see how the suffering and passion of Christ deals with this one, death? Well, in order to deal with death, Jesus had to die. Now, that sounds kind of like oxymoronish, doesn't it? But he had to die so that he could come back to life to prove that he had conquered it. There's no conquering of death if you lay in the grave. And there's no conquering of death this side of death. Oh, you can say, I've conquered death. Really? Let's see now. I'm going to shoot you and see if you've actually conquered it. The only way to conquer death is to come back to life after death, right? Which is what we see here. These verses in 42 through 47 were included to assure us that Jesus was in fact dead, dead. He wasn't unconscious from fainting. He wasn't pretending to be dead, to be removed from the cross, put into a grave so that he could get his senses back and sneak out under the cover of night, no. These verses confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died and was buried. That's the first half of the equation of conquering death, right? Let me repeat the way Mark records it. Joseph of Arimathea had heard of or personally witnessed Jesus' death, all right? He had witnessed a lot of dying. He probably had a pretty good idea what it meant to die he had either personally witnessed it or heard that Jesus was dead. Secondly, Joseph went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus to bury him. Pilate, being surprised that Jesus passed so quickly, six hours, uh, he wanted to confirm the death of Jesus by speaking with the centurion who was overseeing the crucifixion. Now, this, the Roman centurion, in every case, that was overseeing every crucifixion were experts in killing, all right? They never wondered whether or not this guy was dead. They didn't take him down until he was dead. They made sure he died. And so this expert in execution reported that Jesus in fact was dead. And then to top this off, they bring the body down. Joseph and his friends wrap the body in a linen cloth and put him in a grave and roll a large stone over the front of the grave. 
that it took three or four men to move. Jesus was dead. Now, up to this point, he hadn't conquered death. Up to this point, we have no assurance of our own resurrection, right? And this is a key. But Jesus said that a kernel of wheat would never produce unless it died and went into the ground. The first half of the equation is complete. As perfect as the life of Jesus was, and it was perfect in every sense, it would have been a meaningless life if it hadn't ended in death. Death is the wage of sin. Sin had to be atoned for. Sin's consequence is death, either our death or his death. In his grace and mercy, it was his death for us. To prove that Jesus' death was in effect, Matthew's gospel says in chapter 27, verse 51 and 53, that many of those who had already died in the centuries past came back to life out of their graves and walked around in Jerusalem for a few days. Talk about getting freaked out about great-great-grandpa Bob. All these people that had already died came back to life in Matthew's gospel to demonstrate the immediate effect of conquering of death. But Jesus remains in the tomb. And so there's a key element here, which is why we stop here on Palm Sunday to give you a sense of anticipation about God's answer to the resolution of death. I would say this, come back next Sunday. Right? We have a 7 a.m. resurrection something or other. What do we call that thing? Sunrise. sunrise service. We have a sunrise service out here in the courtyard, uh, which is wonderful, and we acknowledge at that time this very thing, the, the confirmation of the effectiveness of the death of Christ for us. Right. He's gonna, he solves our death problem. Right? It's not like, and a lot of people, especially younger people who don't know much about the faith, what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm still going to die, right? Physically, yes, not spiritually. Ne you're never going to die. You're going to live forever. In fact, you're going to be given a new physical body too on the other side of death, but you will rise again. So those who don't know Christ die in their sin and remain in their sin and remain in their death state. It's called the second death. But those of us who have embraced Christ will benefit from the great solution that Jesus provides to death, resurrection. Next Sunday we'll talk about that in, in most of its glory. I don't know how you can talk about the resurrection in all of its glory because there's so much there. We'll try to cover much of it and you will be assured and encouraged, I think, that Jesus actually demonstrates all these things for us. He solves our sin. He solves the separation from God. Uh, and then he solves death. This is what Mark wants us to see. We're going to serve you now the Lord's Supper. But before we do, I want to I encourage you to invite one friend, even if it's an Instagram invite. Uh, invite one friend or acquaintance to next Sunday. Let's pack both services. I mean, this, this room's pretty full right now. We could probably get another 25 or 30 in here. If we set up a bunch of rows, we could get 50 more in here. Um, I would love to have to fill up the, the overflow commons one of these Easter Sundays. But this coming Sunday, uh, invite a friend, invite a neighbor, invite a family member to join us on Easter Sunday and hear the, the wonderful news that death has been conquered. If we'll but, em but embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ. But now we're going to lead you through the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the month and we always want to and look forward to uh, serving you the Lord's Supper. And so uh, I'm going to read for you the words of institution. Uh, can you get from these elements the cup representing the blood of Christ, the broken body representing the broken body of Christ. Can you get from these elements to the profound association 
that they represent. I mean, we've talked about it for the last two or three weeks. The way the body of Christ was destroyed for you, the way the blood of Christ was spilt for you. Can, can, you, can you make that little journey in your mind from these simple elements to all that Christ has done for you? I think you can. And so I'm going to encourage you to do that. We're going to invite you to come up front. If you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come. The elders will serve you. And then you can go back to your seat. And when you're ready, when, when you feel that your heart is full, take the elements. Okay? And then we will rejoice in song at the end of our service. So, elders, if you will come as I pray and read the, the, the words of institution. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we stand in your presence completely overwhelmed with the plan of redemption that included you, the Spirit, and our dear Savior, your Son. We, we can't wrap our minds around all the amazing elements that took place to accomplish forgiveness of sin, to, to accomplish the removal of separation, to clear up for eternity the problem of death. But here we stand under the grace and mercy of our God and King, both Father, Spirit, and Son, totally forgiven, totally renewed, on our way to an eternal home with you. Use these elements, Lord Jesus, I pray, to remind us of your good and gracious sacrifice that you spent for us on Calvary. We acknowledge the depth of our sin, even though we fully don't understand it. We ask that you would receive our faith now as, as mild as it is uh, in an attempt to um, praise you for all that you've done. We do this in your name. Amen.